Welcome to this evening's episode of Atlantic Tales when we'll hear about the brother and sister team brewing beer in Clare the way nature intended. The Western Herd Brewing Company stands on a picturesque hilltop farm near Kilmaley in County Clare. Co-founded by Michael Eustace and his sister Maeve Sheridan, the brewery operates from a converted shed built over 80 years ago by their great-grandfather. Michael's background is in civil engineering and after spending a year in Australia, he returned to Ireland and worked for his father's construction company for a time. Rather than move abroad like many others when the recession hit, Michael found himself in a job he hadn't done before. An opportunity came to go up to Dublin to work in, in a bar up there and I'd never done pub work so I was kind of interested enough in that I suppose to see something different. So I went up to Dublin and I spent five years up there. It was just uh, the top of Grafton Street there and Stephen's Green, the bar called Dandelion. It's not there anymore now but it's, it has nothing to do with me. <laughs> um, when I was there then, I suppose what, what happens in America transfers over to Dublin and then what happens in Dublin kind of spreads around and I, I just I got into the, the, the different types of beers and craft beers like the Sierra Nevada, Brewdog, all that type of stuff and then the Irish scene was just kind of kicking off and I got into home brewing. The bar itself, we used to do food on a Sunday so I used to go into the kitchen, it was a big commercial kitchen, I used to go in there on a Sunday and I'd make a beer inside there on my day off and used to have good crack with the lads from the, the Fitzwilliam Hotel, used to be in on their days after drinking and they'd be in and out giving me a hand, it was, it was good crack and I kind of developed a, an interest in it that way and I suppose I, I was getting a bit older, I went up, I just turned 30 when I went up and I had met my now wife, she was my girlfriend then, and we were kind of thinking what we would do and I, I was kind of always keen to come home. A lot of my friends started moving back from Australia. There was no one doing it down here. There'd been no one since Biddy Early and Ina and we had, you see the, the, the hay barn here behind me, this was sitting here doing nothing. So I spent about a year researching tanks and all that, where I'd get them, different pricing and costing. I got involved with the LEO as well to get funding and I ended up getting a custom kit shipped in from China and I moved home in March 2015 and the tanks and all that landed here and June 2015 we put them together and then between the jigs and the reels it was nearly January February 2016 when we really started production we did a bit before that but I got a brewer in from the US a guy in from Seattle Adam was his name he was a great guy he was really really good to me now so we could be like it was just all there was a lot of red tape involved in getting a visa for him and you can't just bring someone over from the states as a brewer you have to advertise through local papers and through national papers and you have to show that you've exhausted a search you can't get someone here before they give the work visa for someone to come in from there so that's where we got adam over then we got going and that's kind of how it all kicked off really michael's sister Maeve sheridan is co-founder of the western herd brewing company she studied architecture in Dublin initially, but later pursued a master's degree in finance before moving to work in Luxembourg. So I spent seven years there. My daughter was born over there. I met my husband over there. And then after my daughter was born, we were looking to move home. So within a year of her being born, we'd moved home. And over Christmas, I was, you know, we were all hanging around, drinking a few beers and, um, Myself and my brother kind of started talking and we were looking at craft breweries and what was happening and he loved home brewing. And after being in Luxembourg, you know, you're surrounded by Germany and France and it's there's different beers all over the place. And then you come home and you're faced with the option of the commercial breweries, the three breweries that are here. And um, 
no one was doing it locally so we kind of started putting together a business plan and came up with the idea of putting a brewery out here. Originally I had started looking at the farm because the shed has been in the family for over eight generations. The shed that houses this brewery is nearly a hundred years old. It was the first in three surrounding parishes of Kilmealy, Inch and Connolly. So it was my granduncle's pride and joy and it was just sitting here idle. So we were looking at different ways we could use that as well. And then between that and Michael's interest in brewing, we started looking into the possibilities of putting a brewery in here. So we put together a business plan. We went to our local enterprise office to see what they had available in terms of grants and research. And we had a, we had a great response from them. We had great support from them over the seven years we've been here. And that, that's kind of the beginning of how a brewery came to be in Kilmealy. There were very few craft brewers when we started off. And then there was a few starting to pop up like Kinnegar, uh, Metalman of Waterford. There was a few around Dublin like Rascals and that kind of thing. But there wasn't really anybody here doing it. Peter Curtin has the Burn Brewery above it, Listu and Varna. But that's a brew pub. They don't package the, the beers. And the beer is definitely a taste of place. And it's from Clare. And you have so many tourists coming into Clare. Like the... The Cliffs of Moher is one like the biggest tourist attraction, attracts a million tourists a year. So we figured between the local market and then going to commercial centres like Dublin and Cork that, you know, if we put together a compelling proposition that we would be able to hopefully create a sustainable business. But before we even got to that stage, the demand for the in the county was huge. Like we launched with four beers and Siege was our flagship pale ale after Siege of Venice. Blue Jumper was our IPA, which was named after Father Ted um, and Dougal's Blue Jumper. So uh, we'd backbeat after the musical influence in Clare. And then we had Foxcatcher, which was a representation of the farm. So people just totally bought into it. Everybody loved telling the story of the Blue Jumper or Siege. And yeah, it just took off locally in bars and restaurants. We had our own pub inside in town as well, so we could deal directly with our customers. And there was no one in Ennis even doing craft beer. I guess we had to prove our own product was viable. So the bar allowed us to do that and we could see the demand straight away for it. And people were coming in and they were just looking for pints of Kilmaley. They didn't even really <laughs> care what it was. And um, based on the feedback we got there, like all our beers would have been 5% or stronger. Uh, we could see the demand for something lighter. So we came out with the Islander, which is based on Inish, Inish being an island. And uh, that was 4.2. And after that, we had the five beers. And then we used to bring out like summer seasonal ones like Coast Road. We had Cliff Road as well, which had the cliffs on the label. Yeah, it, the thing with craft beer as well, people who drink craft beer want something new nearly every week and expect something new. They're, they're loyal to our brand, but not specifically to a beer as you would have with the commercial breweries. So we constantly had to keep innovating, looking at new hops coming out, looking at new yeasts coming out. And we were always bringing out like a 30 litre keg and we'd bring it into the pub and we put it on social media and it would be gone sometimes by Saturday afternoon. People would be coming in Saturday night looking for the beer and it wouldn't be there anymore. So it was just constant innovation, constantly trying new things and then really 
building the, the core product, uh, focusing on, especially ratings online was very influential, getting people online to rate your product and then it starts moving up the ranks and you know we were the top, we were in the top 10 breweries in Ireland on Untapped which is what people go to to, to review beers. So it was, it was um, building that following and but people did engage with it very quickly and I think because we focused our marketing we knew who our customer was and you, you focus in on their interests and how to attract them and it just captured people's imagination and each of the the well there were bottles at the time had a part of the Clare coastline on it it was just which again was a talking point you know what part of the coastline was on siege and what part was on blue jumper and where is quilty on the map and is that lynch you know so it did it the whole thing kind of captured people's imagination and engaged with the, the customer base. The big thing that we did was we opened the pub inside in town, McHugh's. That was never really part of the original plan. That was a pub that became available and it was a pub that I'd always liked when I was living in town. I liked drinking there. It was, it was a nice, cosy, old-style, traditional pub. And we managed to get a deal done for that. And that took a bit of the, I suppose, a bit of the attention away from here initially at the start that we had to get the pub, we'd get it renovated, get it open and get that making money because like, we had no rent to pay out here but we had you know we, we, we'd overheads inside there with staff and everything so I mean we put a lot of time and effort into that the first couple of years as well and it became a great little local pub and it became a great place to showcase the beers as well instead of bringing people out to a hay barn in Kilmele you could bring them into a lovely cosy pub inside in town. I, I didn't really have it sounds kind of nearly flippant at the minute to say but we didn't really have a, a five to ten year we'll be doing this and doing that and we'll be here we'll be there we kind of let it grow organically and it has and I saw a lot of breweries that did have these plans and they had to be, they were forcing it and they had to be in 40 super values around the country. They had to be in Duns, they had to be in Tesco and all. And a lot of them didn't survive because it wasn't a sustainable model at all. It was just forcing growth that wasn't really there for them. And it's fine, you'll get your, you'll get the first couple of pallets out, but there'll be no return business, if you know what I mean. Like, it won't be consistent. And any of the ones that have lasted that I've seen, they, they grew slowly and then when they had it built up, then they pulled the trigger and they got bigger and they upped the volume and all that. And they're, they're the ones that have survived. It's a tough business. It, it's very, very cutthroat. When you go into pubs, you're dealing, you're fighting against the Ajo and Heineken and like, they're monsters like, you know, that they have such deep pockets. I mean, a, a fellow once said to me, he said, he was a mechanic. He says, you, you know, you just have to take them on, put the head down and take them on. And I said, are you joking me? I said, that's like you going, making cars in Kilmele and taking on BMW and Mercedes, like it just doesn't happen. You, you have to find a way around it, that you have to carve out your own niche and just try and stay and work inside that because going into there, trying to fight for their market share is just a very quick way to go broke in this business. And a lot of breweries have found that and the ones that have survived, they're all carved out their own thing and they've stayed within those parameters and that's where they're trying to work. The first day setting up inside, you knew you had enough space, but Obviously a lot of piping and plumbing and tanks went in. What kind of work went into setting up the brewery itself? Well we had to go in first and dismantle the old cubicles, cut them all out. We had to put in concrete floors, repipe it. The whole thing had to be rewired, control boards put in. We had no three-phase power out here so we were, we've been running off a generator for the best part of five and a half, six years. We only got three phase in this year. So that has allowed us a certain more to automate what we have out here now. But it was it was less, essentially four bare walls. You had to go in and kit everything out and lay it out. I'm lucky my neighbor here is Michael McMahon, MMML Electric, and he was a great help. And then I have the likes of um, my plumber here, Stephen Kalini from Currafin, and these guys have been very obliging, you know. Like, a lot of us, I suppose, none of us were really experts in what we were doing here. I, I certainly wasn't. And, you know, the lads came out and, you know, we kind of figured it all out as we went along. In fairness, they were a great help to me. 
the first bit was putting the tanks in. The, the tanks came in two 40-foot containers and you've seen on your approach road up here to, to the brewery, the road coming up along here isn't exactly conducive to bringing up articulated trucks. So we had to unload above in my other neighbor, Noel McMahon's yard, and another neighbor then, Seamus Vaughan, used to have May Carney's. He came down and we were, he had a big JCB. We were loading onto the back of uh, trailers and hauling them up the road. Then we get here and try and get them in the door. So we got them all in anyway, eventually in position. I suppose then, yeah, getting it going, the first one was, so I, I was nervous anyway. Now, luckily Adam was very experienced. So he was just, it didn't really, it didn't really phase him now to be fair. He just went in and got stuck into it. And I suppose it, luckily it, it went, it went a lot better than I thought the first couple would go all right. We had, we had a lot of issues with the steam out here at the start because none of us had any clue about that and trying to get people around locally even that knew anything about that was tricky. So we got people in from England to give us a hand with that. But um, yeah, it, it, all, it all worked out. There was a lot of teething problems. There was a lot of long nights out here. Which, like when you're dealing with plant, there's always problems, always. You can buy the best gear in the world, but you're still going to have problems. So there's always maintenance and upkeep on that type of thing. Bit of a learning curve. Massive, like every time you see a problem the first time, it's a massive problem. When you see it the second time, it's not as big a problem. And that's what I found that, you know, we're five or six years in now, and a lot of the problems we have now, we can, well, touch wood, we can fix them fairly quickly now, but like, there was times when you'd be scratching your head when it, when, when it arose the first time, like you wouldn't have a clue what to, where to go or what to do, you're out with manuals, trying to chase back boards, and, but like, like I said, it's, it's a big problem the first time, but the second time you kind of get your head around it, it's not too bad. Coming up, we'll hear more from brother and sister team, Michael and Maeve, co-founders of Western Herd Brewing Company and meet their head brewer. Welcome back to Atlantic Tales. The Western Herd Brewing Company stands on a picturesque hilltop farm near Kilmaley in County Clare. Co-founded by Michael Eustace and his sister Maeve Sheridan, the brewery operates from a converted shed built over 80 years ago by their great-grandfather. Michael had managed a busy bar in Dublin for several years, while Maeve worked in Luxembourg before they both returned to County Clare and later established their own business. How did Michael and Maeve's family and friends react to news they were starting a brewery? Well, I guess because the, the brewery was on the family farm, from a family point of view, they were happy to see that the farm was being used and that the shed was being used and it wasn't just being left. My father doesn't even drink, but he loved, you know, coming out and giving the cans to, you know, the postman or his friends or, you know, try this new one. And as I said, he, d he doesn't drink, so he didn't even understand the differences between them, but he does now. And he actually went out and he put the, the gates in with the, the Western Herd logo all over the farm. So they've been hugely supportive, like, you know, above and beyond what we could have expected. Our friends as well, the first night we opened the pub, I'd never worked in a pub before, Michael had. So it was strange, you know, you're cleaning, you're getting everything ready, and we'd put so much time and effort into getting it ready, and then getting the beers out on time and getting everything to kind of coincide. So we had something on tap when we opened, and we started with two beers on draft. But like the the pub was full. I went home to get changed, came back in at six o'clock and it was just full. The response was phenomenal. And that support continued. I guess it was somewhere for, not that there was nowhere in town for them to go. There's plenty of lovely pubs in town, but they really engaged with what we were doing as well. With the display, we had a huge selection of like whiskies and gins and vodkas and uh, 
even the tonics and we, we did a lot of supporting local as well like with local kombucha we use clear spring waters and it, yeah it the response was unbelievable and even the likes of John Burke from the Armada he was looking for our beer like he totally bought into what we were doing and understood what we were doing and saw the value in it so you know once you have that little little base of people to get you started and then you kind of grow you have to you know as I said prove the concept and prove the product and once craft beer was selling in our pub slowly it started trickling out into other pubs the old ground was very early adopter as well and again they would have tourists coming in and they saw the benefit of having a beer especially the Americans love the IPAs so once you had a local IPA they'll always go for it because it's more culturally acceptable in America to drink craft beers and they're you know I guess in Ireland there was this idea that craft beer is really strong and it's going to blow the head off you and you, you know two pints and you'll be dead or something <laughs> but it wasn't like that at all especially with the likes of Islander which was a lower ABV yeah we had a great response to the products really gauging your market you had the bar to do that how long was that process finding out who would like what and whether you could have a successful business yeah that was that was a bit of a slower burner now um, again because of the idea that consumers had in their head that craft beer was really strong and it was going to blow the head off you and you could have a pint or two of it slowly that did change but it did yeah it took a long time um we had the the likes of john burke and the armada in the old ground and there was a few other tourist spots around the county like um, from the long dock out in Carrigahold right up to you know Monks and Ballyvahan. So that's kind of where we started and it allowed us to focus on production because they were taking as much as we were brewing and that suited us so we could get our, our production right and we didn't have to worry about distribution either. You know you can always you know Nipple. spin up. Yeah. Um, it, so you know initially that worked out well for us so then yeah we we grew it and as i said we had to try new beers and the likes of coast road and cliff road just took off and we were doing a lot of festivals as well you know we were going to say taste in dublin and then they were looking to see where you could get our beers because they did enjoy them the you know the people who were attending the events but we weren't available in Dublin. Maeve and Michael have their own water source on the farm in Kilmele. Surprisingly though, there are very few other ingredients needed to make Western Herd's popular beers. Well, our ingredients are very simple. It's fairly basic. It's water from the well, it's grain, which we get from mainly from the Malting Company of Ireland down in Cork, or we get it from Lochran's above and around Dundalk side. The speciality grains come in from Belgium, Germany, but they're all sourced through Lochran's. The hops then, we get most of them through Lochran's now as well. Most of the hops we use would come from the Pacific Northwest of the US. You're talking like Portland, Seattle, up around that side, Oregon and Washington State. So they all come through them. And then the yeast comes from a guy down in, in Wicklow, Phil. And that's it. That's all we're using, really. It's four basic ingredients. Like, it's almost as simple as bread. Do you know, there's, there's not a lot ingredients-wise. It's how you use them then and what you what different types of ones you use is what makes the difference. And to decide then what you're going to produce in terms of flavours and all of that, where did you get the expertise for that or was that something you researched? It sounds pretty simple to say, but you drink a lot of beer. <laughs> yeah, you, you, that's, like I've, been, I've been in the States on beer tours, going around different breweries, seeing how they do it, what they're doing, what I like, what I don't like. 
there's a bit of give and take in it that everything I like, Maeve and Bridger won't necessarily like or Adam didn't necessarily like and they wanted to brew stuff or sometimes the market will dictate that they're looking for something and we've brewed beers here that wouldn't be my cup of tea but people have really, really enjoyed them and then <clears throat> we've made beers out here that I thought were brilliant and people go, ah, they're only okay. So like, it's not like the macro produced stuff whereby it's brewed just to be plain, plain, plain. Like we'd have, we'd brew a massive range of beers. Like geez, we must have over 50 different types of beers brewed at this stage. Like, and that, that wouldn't even be big for a microbrewery. A lot of microbreweries would be up in the three, four hundreds different types of beers brewed. Like, so the scope for what you can do and what like the, the different things you like fermenting out with champagne yeast to get dry beer, putting big stouts into different whiskey barrels, and like we'd get whiskey barrels from W. D. O'Connell. We'd get them from we'd have Buffalo Trace barrels. We got some from Louise back in JJ Corey. Curric, we just did a seaweed cask with them. The scope, it's, it's almost like wine. You can do so much with it. Like it, it, it's crazy, really. Like some people have a very narrow view on beer that it's either a lager or a stout is what they're used to. But they're two ends of the spectrum. And inside in that, you can do anything, really. Bridger Kelleher is head brewer at Western Herd. Originally from Montana in the United States, where he had been home brewing since his early 20s, he often considered getting into the industry on a full-time basis. Bridger moved to Ireland with his Clare-born wife and settled in Kilmehill. He had been visiting Western Herd Brewery for a time and was taken on by Michael and Maeve, who had been looking for a new brewer. So what prompted the self-proclaimed hophead to get into home brewing in the first place? Just the size and the industry in the United States, uh, craft beer, um, just really kind of got into it once I started. You know, over there it's 21, so I turned 21 and kind of really got started getting into the craft beers, turned into a bit of a hophead and uh, loved the kind of the big hoppy beers. And um, so many breweries over there. Within an hour's drive of my house in, in Montana there, there was 19 different craft breweries. So it was kind of one of those things where you know, it's a, a, bit, a bit of a culture really over there. So you're, when you're going on vacation, you're Googling what breweries are around, you're going and trying, a lot of them have tap rooms on site. So you can go and have a, have a pint on site or uh, maybe a half pint or, and so you can try a few of them. And, but it's just a massive industry. Uh, you go in and it's a, it's a very friendly industry too. So you go into maybe a brewery over there and they'd be, they'd be asking you when you come in, where have you been before this? Maybe go try this place next. And so it's just kind of a, it was, it was a nice little industry, kind of a niche there where, you know, it was just very inclusive and welcoming and, you know, it was something you're, I was interested in with the beer. So coming here then, uh, before coming over here for the last few years before I moved here, got to try the beers a few times in the pub in Ennis and in McHugh's and kind of when I, once I moved here and once I was looking for the work, uh, it was actually just touching base with Ian Gary, who was the brewer here at the time, out here, just showed up. That was kind of a, a bit of a running joke in the company now is that I just showed up and never left. Um, but uh, it worked out good kind of timing-wise with him too because he was kind of wanting to, to move on and do something a little bit different. That's, you know, he, he kind of enjoys a bit of variety. So, um, and it worked good with just coming here and, and, and kind of learning from him for a while and then kind of taking over, so. Let's step up here then because we can get a better perspective of what exactly is in here. It, it's a big operation. Yeah, yeah, so we, before we did this latest expansion, uh, we were operating at about 12,000 liter capacity. Um, and we've, we're up around 22,000 now. Uh, so it's not quite double volume, but it's with scheduling, you can actually more than double capacity, if that makes sense, based on when you kind of empty tanks and turn them around. So um, this is the, like what we're looking at here now, these are all of our fermenters, and we have two bright tanks as well. So the bright tanks are used for kind of finishing and carbonating and getting it ready to package. 
Um, but then, uh, so these kind of taller ones there, they'd be known as double fermenters. So what happens with those is that I'll brew two days in a row to fill those because um, over, to, over to your left here is our brew deck. And um, on a brew day, I end up producing what works out to be about, it's a 1600 liter brew. Um, so it takes two days to fill these tall tanks, but then the smaller ones then get filled in one day. So a one brew day produces about 1600 liters of work. Um, and what's packaged then down the line is actually usually about 1,000 to 1,200 because you have a bit of loss with uh, yeast and hops and things like that. I suppose I'll, I'll walk you through a bit of the brew day maybe. Uh, the day before a brew, um, the, the, the far left tank here, uh, it's a, it's a 2,500 liter tank. Well, I'll fill that up and I use our steam system to heat that to about 90 degrees Celsius. And kind of the reason why it's that is that when I come in then the next morning, I come in at about uh, 6 o'clock for a brew day, but when I come in that next morning, I'm looking for that tank to be around 78 degrees Celsius. These are all insulated, so it'll, it'll slowly drop, but that's the temperature I'm looking for because that's what's known as our strike temp. Um, and that, what, what that does then, once I um, mix it with the barley, is it, it, it's at that kind of perfect temperature range for that enzymatic reaction to start. So our tank on the far right here is our mash tun. Uh, there's some rakes in there and there's a grain bed floor. What basically happens there is I make it's like a big batch of porridge. All this barley goes into it. So you, you know between 300 kg and 400 kg depending on the brew. Goes in there. I know exactly how much water I need to put in there to make a good consistency and a good temperature. But what I'm looking for is typically around 67 degrees for an ale and 65 for a lager. But once it's all mixed together, you know, get a good consistency, good kind of, you know, you're looking at the foam as well. But basically then once you get a good mix, you just let it sit and that's called your mash rest. And you, you depending on the beer, it'd be 30, 30 minutes to an hour on the mash rest. And what's happening then is all the, all those sugars are starting to loosen up from those husks and the barley. You're, you're looking for a good extraction then. So our next step in that is up until you pitch the yeast, it's called work. You'd pull it from the bottom, your work, and you're cycling it over the top. Uh, it's known as Vorloff, but you're, you're kind of compacting that grain bed. You're, you're turning it in almost into a filter. So you do that for about 30 to 40 minutes, and then you switch between running the word over itself to running your hot water back over the top. And instead of running it off the bottom and over the top, you start collecting it into our middle tank here, which is the kettle. So everything that's coming off that tank then gets collected, and those are all the sugar that you're looking for. So you've compact that into a filter, all that grain, and then that next step is washing all the sugars off the filter that you can get. And there are glass tops where you can keep an eye and looking through. Yeah. Does the process take much minding? It does. Um, you're, you know, different steps use the pump and you're kind of adjusting the, the speed of the pump. Uh, and you're kind of always checking to make sure, you know, you're, you're checking kind of your pH and uh, you're checking your sugar content throughout the different steps of it just to make sure you're on, on, on the right track. Um, because, I mean, it, you don't want to get to the end and be well under your sugar, especially if you're making a beer that you've made a bunch, like let's say our Siege Pale Ale, you know, that has a kind of an ABV that you're trying to hit. So if you're, if you're kind of, if you come in way under, you're never going to get to that ABV. So that kind of has an effect on, you know, uh, obviously packaging and things like that. You can't really go calling it the Siege if it's, you know, maybe three and a half percent instead of five percent. So we wash the water and the sugars off and we collect in that kettle there 
So we, we collect 1,750 liters because we end up boiling it for an hour with that steam. So we boil it for an hour and that kind of concentrates the sugars, but the main thing that it does is it makes it um, anaerobic. There's nothing else for the yeast to be there eating except for the sugars. And kind of in that, st in that process, uh, there's different stages where you'd be adding hops, uh, depending on the beer, of course. Like a, like a, like a siege or an IPA, you know, you'd be adding a bit more hops than you would for like a lager or a red. But there's, there's steps in there and, uh, where you add hops as well. But then, um, so you, you have the 60 minutes of boil. When you're done with that, you have, um, you get it kind of spinning. You can pull it from the bottom. And on this tank, there's a, a side pour. Pull it from the bottom and pump it in through the side and that gets a real spin. It's like a bit, it's, it looks like a hurricane almost in there, or like a tornado or something, yeah. you know. But, but, but what that does then is it kind of anything in there, any kind of uh, proteins or any hops that you've added, when you cut that, it, it makes a natural kind of cone in the bottom. So you're leaving that behind when you're moving into the fermenter. So you'd pump it in then through our heat exchanger and into the tank. And what the heat exchanger does is it, depending on the speed of the, the, the water coming in and the work going through, uh, you can kind of control the temperature that you're putting into the tank at because you, you really want, obviously the yeast has a temperature range that you're wanting to operate in. Most of our ale yeasts are for between 18 and 21, we like to keep them. So you want to obviously put it into the tank around 19 or 20 degrees so that that yeast is starting off right at the right temperature. Uh, we collect all of our water off to Our well water will come in cold, but as it's passing our work, you know, the heat's exchanged. So we collect that then for the next day for cleaning because it comes out usually around 50 to 60 degrees. Nothing wasted. Nothing wasted, yeah, we, exactly, yeah. Try to be as efficient as possible. From start to finish, going through all this process, moving it over to the big tanks, what's the time frame from the very start to when it's canned or put into kegs? The ales are typically three to four weeks. We can kind of turn those around in. Lagers typically are seven to eight weeks or a little bit longer just because everything in the tank is done a little cooler. Like the fermentation temperature on those is usually 11 or 12 degrees. It's a different yeast and you're looking for a different flavor profile. But typically, most of what we do are ales. And so it's a three to four week turnaround usually from the brew day to the canning day. Coming up, we'll hear more about the brewing process and what the future holds for Western Herd. Welcome back to Atlantic Tales. The Western Herd Brewing Company stands on a picturesque hilltop farm near Kilmaley in County Clare. Co-founded by Michael Eustace and his sister Maeve Sheridan, the brewery operates from a converted shed built over 80 years ago by their great-grandfather. Michael and Maeve's head brewer is originally from the United States. Bridger Kelleher, who is married to a Clare woman, always had an interest in brewing. When the mechanical element of the brewing process at Western Herd is almost complete, the nose and palate take over. Yeah, I definitely. Um, it's, it's about, once it's in the tank, you know, you kind of have maybe four to five days of fermentation time. And there's not a lot you can tell then, because it's, the yeast is active. You know, you're, you're keeping the temperature in that range. But once that's done, you, you, you spend a good two and a half weeks maybe, most beers. It's all about taste and nose then, then at that stage because you're, you're checking it nearly every day um, as far as you know aroma and flavor profile. What you're working to do is get all the, any kind of hops or yeast that is left in it out. So it's a, that, that's, a big, that's a big part of it then at that stage is it's all just kind of comes down to, you know, and timing, timing when you kind of chill because uh, you can keep it in the yeast range, the temperature, during fermentation, but once the fermentation is done, you bring it down. 
But you don't bring it all the way down, let's say to two or three degrees straight away because you're wanting that yeast to fall out. And you, you want to, sometimes you might be um, reusing the yeast for another brew. That's, uh, that's something that's done as well. But you know, you kind of bring it down to let's say 10 degrees and you leave it there for a little while. Because you might be adding some different hops in at that stage or you might be, but th that whole process from there, because you can still, if you, if you were to push it in package maybe, push it right at the three week barrier, let's say. Sometimes it's still a bit green. It might, all the yeast might be out of it. You know, it might technically be, you know, good to go clarity wise, but it, you just get a bit of a green flavor off of it. And once you kind of package it, then, you know, that, that's in the can. Yeah, you know, it kind of has to do with a little bit of kind of just touch. Sometimes maybe an ale might take five weeks, but you just have to have that nose um, as far as when it's ready. You kind of know, typically beer to beer too. You might say, oh, a siege, that's an ale that we, we always give four and a half weeks. Whereas there might be an IPA that we can package almost always at three weeks. Yeah, it just kind of comes down to, you know, feel and nose and we've automated some of the, the steps as far as the chilling system goes. And we've also got, you might see those black boxes on there, they're fermentation monitors. I could kind of look on my laptop or my phone from home and see a few different numbers, my, my temperature and I can look at uh, the, the gravity as well, the sugar content from, from anywhere. What I do with that information then is I can look batch to batch. I can look back, let's say this batch of Siege, we really liked. This one was a little bit different for some reason. We don't know why, but we can go back and check the temperature and the sugar content all throughout the fermentation and say, oh, well, it kind of had a very active, very fast fermentation towards the end. Maybe that's the reason why. So we're kind of trying to come up to speed with some of those things now that we've done a renovation to where we can, we can get more consistency batch to batch. It's, it's funny sometimes, you know, myself or Michael might notice the difference, but nobody else might. You know, it might be something to where it might be very, most of the time it's very subtle, you know, maybe a very slight difference, but uh, we always kind of joke even then too, because we might tweak a recipe too, slightly. You know, we might try something new, we might say, oh, maybe a little bit more of this hop or a little bit less of this hop, but usually a lot of times when we do that, we're the only ones that even notice a bit of a, a difference. But because you're doing it all the time and you're perfectionists, you want to know why yeah, it's different. exactly, that's it. A big but unavoidable part of the brewing process is preparing the tanks for the next brew. Cleaning takes up a significant amount of Bridger's time at Western Herd. I kind of always kind of jokingly say nearly that brewing, if you're a brewer, you're, you're basically a, a cleaner. It's about 90% cleaning. So when we have a tank that's been emptied, it's ready to, to clean, clean in place, what we call CIP process. So um, it, it takes about a day to clean a tank. So you have your hot water maybe that you've salvaged from the brew day from a brew day, let's say, but you're, you're, there's, there's about five different steps that go into cleaning a tank. So you have your original hot water rinse, uh, and, you, and you, you're looking actually to bring the tank up to a certain temperature for that. So um, with the, the cleaners that I, uh, the enzymatic cleaner I use, it's about 60 degrees I'm looking to bring that to. So just from what, uh, you start, obviously try to rinse away any kind of uh, leftover hops or yeast or there's um, the line that it fermented on at the top is called the Krausen line. So you're looking to wash most of that as well, as well in that first step. Um, but then once you have that step done, you have your tank at about 60, then you can kind of batch your caustic, your enzymatic cleaner. Um, you put it into the tank and you cycle that. And you cycle it for typically about an hour and a half to two hours. Because um, what, you, and the main important thing there is you're looking to keep it in the temperature range. So you 
you run that cycle then and you can kind of go back in then I usually go in with a lot hotter of a rinse after that maybe around 80 to 90 degrees or higher if I can um, and then your step after that would be to bring it back down because you're looking to sanitize then so the sanitization cycle then is actually run around 20 so then that cycles run um, and then it's purged with CO2 kind of just to kind of prepare it for the next the next brew to go in so that's kind of I suppose the process that goes along with painting a tank kind of maybe the condensed version of it <laughs> that, most, that most people don't ever hear about and a day per tank how many tanks yeah so there's eight tanks here now uh, and then these are these uh, uh, the the brew deck itself gets it there's a CIP process that goes in between each brew as well for those um, and then they have um, they all the tanks have a schedule to kind of once every three to four months I'll, I'll actually get into each one and do a spot check and get into it get into each tank Climb in here it. yeah yeah so these new ones now have they have a they have a handy door on the side there so that's that's a nice one on the on the older ones the, the the top has to come off and we have a little ladder that goes down inside but at the very end of the process when you have a lot of waste what happens to the waste so our, our grain once we're done with the barley that's left after I've taken all that sugar from it uh, we call it spent grain there's local farmers that actually come and collect it. So we, we had this door on the side, open it up, use this rake, we pull it all out into a wheelbarrow and they load it up and bring it away and they use it for cattle feed and the cattle just love it. Nothing wasted. Nothing wasted. Few businesses escaped the effects of the global pandemic. Hospitality eventually ground to a halt, pubs closed, as did microbreweries like Western Herd. The first major lockdown came at a time when the brewery was particularly busy. What really changed for us was during lockdown because we had been so busy just keeping up with the demand locally. We just didn't have time to sit down and think. So that was maybe four years into the business and then everything stopped. The pub closed, like 90% of our beer sales were in Clare in bars and restaurants. So pretty much overnight our business was gone. So we had to look to see how could we change from an on-trade model to an off-license model. So luckily there was a business starting in Mullingar, it was a mobile canning line where they came down and they hooked their machine up to the tanks and they canned directly from it. So prior to that we were doing bottles and kegs. So there could be three of us there trying to get through maybe half a tank a day canning we'd have a pallet full of beer the three of us going flat out for the day and at one stage we turned around to each other and we're like Heineken would do that in five minutes with no human involvement so it just wasn't viable so the, the canning guys just changed our business model completely so they'd come down they'd they'd empty two tanks in the day and everything would be in cans ready to be shipped out then again we had time to look at like we'd always wanted to brew a stronger beer like a double IPA which would be about nine nine and a half percent so we came out first with the height so it had the, the Daniel O'Connell monument on it and it, it was gone the guys came down canned it and it was gone that evening um, so we, we looked at different types of new hops that were coming to the market. So we had Mohuhayupoku, which was a New Zealand hop. So we took the antipode of Kilmele, which is Mohuhayupoku, which is the point opposite Kilmele in the globe. Uh, we put it out and it was gone that day again, maybe two days. It was a, it was a lower ABV, it was around 6, 6.5%. We had the forge, which we did in conjunction with the forge in Kilkee. But the real game changer for us was flora and fauna. That just captured the online 
imagination. Twitter went crazy for it. There was guys stockpiling it as soon as it went on sale. So, you know, and that was named the Irish Beer of the Year last year as well. If it wasn't for lockdown, we would never have had time to even consider doing these kind of beers. And looking at the canning now, we're still working with the canner, so they come in, can the beer, and then we took on a national distributor as well. So our off-license business exploded. So since lockdown, we've doubled the capacity of the brewery. We've put on an extension, and our core range now is bananas because we keep brewing the beers that keep selling, and then we'd add new ones. Uh, we did a lager, which was loop head. Lagers take that much longer to ferment, so we never had the tank space to allow a beer sit for six to eight weeks, whereas the others are four to six weeks. So we had time to do that as well. So lockdown, as bad and all as it was. Every cloud. You know, yeah, yeah. exactly. We were home, homeschooling trying to figure out what were we going to do with our business, where are we going to go with it. There was guys online. If you ever want to torture anyone, get them to bubble wrap beer to try to send it out in bottles. It was just tedious. So we had to look at the cans and we did. We got rid of our, the stock we had because we had been brewing January and February getting everything packaged for the busy tourism season, what, which didn't come. So we had all the stock we had to get rid of. And then once, you know, COVID lifted, the bar business didn't didn't bounce back like you know the no one trusted that the bar would stay open which was fair enough um even ourselves you know we would have had eight to ten of our own beers on draft at any one time in McHugh's and then we had two to four maybe because you didn't know when you were going to be open again would you be closed that evening so the the bars that we had been working with you know took on their commercial beers that they knew would sell and then we're very slow to take on the, the lesser, yeah. the slower uh, selling beers. So we were lucky in that sense we had the off-license trade. So the keg business is slowly coming back. It's nowhere near what it was. Um, but we have the, the off-trade business now as well. And, you know, we're still trying to figure out what percentage cans, what percentage kegs, and what beers here and what beers there. Um, because the... The, the off-trade is all the higher ABV beers and then the on-trade is the lower ones. But now the, the on-trade or the off-trade we have in Dublin are taking on some of the higher ABVs on draft as well. So we're lucky we can move and change. You know, we're a small operation. We're, we can be that bit more flexible between, you know, 20 litre kegs because, you know, some bars are small, we can cater for that. And then you have the bigger ones who want the 50 litre kegs. Yeah, we're, we're still trying to figure out. It's like we're a startup again, nearly kicking off again. So yeah, no, it's, it's interesting anyway. The future for Western Herd is bright. And with the brewery now extended, there is room for more capacity. Developing new products is very much part of the plan going forward. Uh, we're already, we've, we've two new beers in development now. This should be out, hopefully around Paddy's. Um, so that'll be two. And then there'll be more throughout the year. We've, I don't know if you were inside now, did you see there's, there's one, two, three, four, five. There's five different casks inside that have stout in them. So they're all going to be five different beers because they're all installed in five different types of uh, whiskey casks. So there's seven beers and we're only in the middle of January. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's constantly, because the market is constantly demanding it. Everyone wants, to, like we, we deal with a, a distributor, ABCD, and the biggest question we get is what's new, what's next, what's new? You know, they'll take the core range and that's fine, but to stay relevant, it's always what's next and what's new. And it, it's a, like, but that's the enjoyable side of it. Like it's, it's not, 
you're not just in here punching numbers and doing the same thing day after day after day there is a certain side that that, that that's done and that's fine but there is a like I suppose a creative side to this as well that and then we have a team you know that'll do our labels and you're looking at that artwork and are you happy with it I'm lucky my, my brother-in-law Emmett above in Dublin he he's his own company brandish and he does he does all our label design now our initial label was done by a guy from up around Liston Varna, Vinnie Casey is his name, he's outside in Australia now. So we try to get everything done as locally as possible at the start, but I mean, it's just not possible sometimes, you have to go other places. So um, yeah, that's, we've, we've, we always have plans, whether they all work out or not, <laughs> it's debatable. In the overall scheme of things, it's a small operation, but that suits you. What are the plans for the future? Is it safe to stay small and meet the demand you have, or do you have plans to expand? I don't really, I don't have any plans to expand. I'm quite happy with the size of the brewery now. We are after adding more tanks there. We got help from the LEO again. So we've literally pretty much doubled the capacity of the brewery there in the last six to eight months. It's big enough for me now. We are still toying with the idea of putting a tap room in out here. There's licenses there separate from a pub license that you can get to do that so that you can bring people out here. It's literally like a pub that opens at 12 o'clock in the day and is closed at seven o'clock. That's pretty much what it is. So we're toying with the idea of doing that. We won't do it this year. Maybe we'll have a look in the next couple of years and see what way it goes. But um, we're under no rush now. I'd rather, I'd rather just concentrate on what we have now. We're after doubling the size of it. We need to get up, see how we run for a year or two with that, what kind of capacity, what needs we can meet. Like for the last year to 18 months, you know, we weren't even able to take on new accounts. We just didn't have enough beer to get out like. So this now will hopefully give us a bigger chance. We've, we've good contacts with people out in Italy who take our beer and we haven't had beer to give them. So I'm hoping that we can start doing a bit more export as well now. We'll see then. I'll have a better idea this time next year where we stand. But as you say, in relation to flavours, you have to remain relevant. The business has to remain relevant as well and make it more accessible to people as, as you develop. Yeah, well, it's funny. You, you think that we have to change for the people, but what I've noticed is that the people have kind of changed in, in the last seven years. That like, One of our best-selling beers now and our most in-demand beer is Flora and Fauna, which is a, a 9.5% double IPA, which if you told me seven years ago I'd be able to sell that inside Nennis, I would have thought you were crazy. Like, whereas now they're queuing up to, to, to buy it. Like, it, it sells out the minute we have it done. Um, so it's like everything. It just takes time for people to get their head around what's changing. Like, you know, so yeah, we haven't really, what we have kind of changed is that we have stopped brewing kind of what we thought people wanted back then. And we're kind of brewing the bigger beers that we would have liked. And they seem to be selling now, which I don't think they would have sold around back six, seven years ago. But people's taste and their attitude to beer has kind of changed down here, which is what we expected to happen, but it's expecting it to happen and waiting for it to happen are two different things. But um, thankfully, people are kind of coming around now, yeah. Did you ever look back and say, what in the name of God are we doing? Oh God, yeah. <laughs> oh, many a time. Especially during, uh, you know, since COVID, when you look back, like myself and Michael had two small kids running around and we're trying to bubble wrap beer and keep them alive and teach them, <laughs> you know. They were crazy days. And even, you know, when there was outdoor dining in the pub, I met a friend of mine, I was like, yeah, I remember sitting in Parnell Street with the strawberry daiquiri in one hand and holding on to the, the, the leg of a gazebo to stop it blowing up Parnell yeah. Street. That, we actually did that and they stayed there for a few rounds, you know. And especially from the business point of it, you never know what you're letting yourself in for when you start off. And then you kind of, you just have to keep going with it. And yeah, as I said, COVID was a challenge, but you know, we looked, took time, uh, looked at opportunities, 
saw things we wanted to do that we never had time to do and we got those kind of things done but you know there's there's always pressures and like this country loves the red tape and you just seem to be gotten red tape every time you turn around and you reach one barrier and then there's another one and then there's another one but you just have to keep on going and you've good days and you've bad days and you just luckily we've had more good days it's it's not a, a struggle as such like as i said there are good days and bad days but yeah we definitely do, do enjoy it and every day is different like next month we're going up to the cliffs of moher they're having a showcasing event i think one of the best days i had here was we were invited to uh, saint olas for their 20 year um, anniversary and we brought out the beer and we were giving it out to all the people they had invited and then I was asked in they had um, a chef down from Pickle in Dublin I had a massive goat curry we were sitting in the middle of this shed in Ina eating the finest food and drinking the finest beers and uh, ciders and goats were just giving birth around us and it was just so bizarre like where would you get it so, um, yeah, you know, there's things like that. And those are the days you remember more than, you know, the other ones. I remember when I started first, I was contact. I was trying to get suppliers lined up and I rang your man down in the Malting Company of Ireland. And I told him who I was and what I was doing. And he says, do you realize there's a tablet you can take for that to cure yourself of it? <laughs> so I was, kind of, I was kind of taken a bit aback by that. Like, this is a guy who was going to give him business to, and he was kind of telling me, what, asking me what the hell I was doing. But yeah, but it's like, it's like anything. If, if you knew then what you know now, would you do anything? You know, I don't regret doing this. I really enjoy it. Um, you get out, like I, I've met an awful lot of people around the county, you know, publicans, restaurateurs, hoteliers, you know, I, I know an awful lot of people now that I wouldn't have known back then. And it gives you a good insight, because I'm in that business as well, you know, I have a pub in La Hinch, so you're going around and you're seeing what people are doing and what's working for them and you're talking to them and it gives you a good insight because sometimes it can be very tunnel vision in what you're doing if you're inside just working away at your own thing and you don't have a look lift your head and see what's up, what other places are doing or what's working in other places so this gives me a good chance to get around even spin up to Dublin every now and again and go around the pubs there where the stuff is selling and you just pick up little bits and pieces every now and again and see can you work them to your advantage in your own business so no no I, I don't regret doing this at all no no we're very happy with it you know we have clear right on the, the label you know from the coastline to the names of the product and you know it, it's grounding the product like the main ingredient is the well water from the farm the farm has been in our family for eight generations and it's that kind of heritage that gives you know uh, gives your product a story and engages people and gets them talking about what you're doing and they, they love it it's not just you know mass produced somewhere else part of Kamele is in the beer and I think that's hugely important